With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That is hammered down the line and left into the corner. It is gone. We're going to start this episode about computer hacking with a little baseball. Randall Gretchen puts the Cardinals on the board in the first inning with a home run right down the line. one nothing St. Louis. That's from the first game of the 2014 National League Division Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the L.A. Dodgers. The Cardinals eventually won the series, 10-9. They later lost the league championship to San Francisco. Still, a pretty impressive season. But that same year, in the team's front office, something else was going on. You've got this guy working for the Cardinals, Chris Correa. That's Josephine Wolf. She teaches cybersecurity policy at Tufts University. She's also a baseball fan. Chris Correa, the Cardinals executive, was looking at scouting reports and putting together lists of players the team might want to hire. And he has some former co-workers on the Cardinals, some folks who used to work there with him who leave and go to work for the Astros. And when they leave, they turn over, as you do, your work computer and also the password, the account you use to access it. Um, and Correa, who's still with the Cardinals after they leave, gets this idea that maybe the passwords haven't changed that much in their new roles. Maybe they've set up their new accounts with the, uh, the Astros and used us the same or very similar password, and he tries it out with one of his former coworkers, and it works. Correa was able to get into the Houston Astros' internal computer system. He could see all their stats, what players they had their eyes on, all of it. And he did this more than once. He continues to sort of access this through various people's accounts and use it to pull down a lot of information. And he's charged under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, this big anti-hacking law that goes back to the 80s. The case was a huge deal, both for people like Josephine, who study cybersecurity, and for Major League Baseball. People are wondering in the game exactly how far the commissioner is going to go. Is he going to take away an entire year's worth of draft? Is he going to go harder than that? Is he going to issue a huge fine on the Cardinals? Because, uh, look, it's, it's, uh, in, it's industrial espionage. The league fined the Cardinals $2 million and made them give up two draft picks. But the bigger penalty fell to Chris Correa. He was sentenced to 46 months in prison. And a lot of people, including Correa, I think, kind of look at this and say, like, you know, I'm the hacker who you're going after. I'm the example you want to set here of what illegal hacking is. On the one hand, Josephine says, Correa did it. On the other, he's not exactly a sophisticated black hat hacker. Plus, there was the way he was sentenced. The way that we count charges in hacking is very very kind of counterintuitive or, or subjective, we might say, right? Like if we're talking about counts of murder, we have a very good sense of sort of what's one count of murder. If we're talking about counts of hacking, then is it every time somebody logs in? Correa's 46-month sentence came in part because he pleaded guilty to five counts of unauthorized access. But also, Josephine says, because he was someone prosecutors could actually charge. 
A lot of illegal hacking we don't or can't prosecute. It's people overseas. It's people who we can't identify or if we do identify, can't get them extradited. And so there is a little bit of a sense that sort of when you actually catch somebody and are able to charge them, there's there's sometimes a, a bit of a desire to punish them as harshly as possible. But just recently, the government has started rethinking this, narrowing down what hacking really means and who should be charged with it. Today on the show, how a law that began with the 80s movie War Games is getting a bit of a modern makeover. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Back in 1986, when the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was enacted, there were already laws against extortion and other financial crimes that we often associate with hacking. But what didn't exist, Josephine says, is a law that focused on the act of hacking itself. So what Congress needs to do when they decide we're going to write a new law here is they need to come up with some class of behavior that's specific to using computers that's not already been made illegal. And what they come up with is they say it's going to be illegal to access computers without authorization or in excess of authorization. We're talking about trespassing into the computer. It's not even really what you do with the computer that's illegal. It's that act of accessing it in the first place. Because all of the things that you were going to do with the computer that that would be illegal were already illegal. There's this story that President Reagan saw the movie War Games and asked some advisor, like, could that really happen? And they said, yeah. And that that's where this law was born. If you don't remember the plot, teenager David Lightman, aka Matthew Broderick, accidentally hacks into a military supercomputer while looking for new video games and almost starts World War III. There's definitely a strong influence from that movie um, in this law, right? They, they actually show a few minutes of it at one of the early congressional meetings where they're starting to draft kind of what's the CFA going to be. So no question that's hugely influential. Um, I think, you know, the only thing I can say kind of in defense of Congress is they're writing this law in the mid-1980s. Nobody has any idea what computer hacking is going to look like. I mean, if you if you know the movie, one of the sort of key moments of hacking in it comes when the very young Matthew Broderick guesses the password for right. a developer who's who's been building the system for the U.S. government. We're in. <laughs> it thinks on Falcon. And so you can see how sort of that becomes a, a central part of what Congress is thinking about. Sort of what if. What if you guess a password or you figure out somebody's password and you get access to their account or a computer system they were able to control? Um, and, and we think kind of when we look at the language in the CFAA, that that's pretty clearly mapped to this idea of accessing a computer without authorization. 
right? I'm, I'm accessing it with somebody else's credentials, but it's certainly not the only way that we see people access computers without authorization. And, and I think, you know, to Congress's credit, perhaps, they leave the language broad enough that as computing technology evolves and as people find new ways to hack into computers, the law encompasses that. But the flip side of that is that you have such a broad definition of hacking here that it encompasses all sorts of other stuff. The CFA's language was broad enough to prosecute Lori Drew. In 2006, she helped create a fake MySpace profile to trick a girl named Megan Meyer, who was a classmate and nemesis of her teen daughter. The page showed a teenage boy with a made-up name, Josh Evans. The fake Josh sent the real Megan flirty, friendly messages, but then the messages turned dark and hateful. His last one read, the world would be a better place without you. Megan Meyer, who was just 13, hanged herself and the federal government went after Lori Drew. And prosecutors actually bring CFAA charges against her and say, this was computer hacking. This was unauthorized. MySpace Mm. had a policy that you weren't allowed to use fake names or other people's photos. And so I think sort of that, that broadness of the law, which is intended to help it stand the test of time, also means that it's very widely applied or has the potential to be very widely applied to a lot of different people. A jury convicted her on three misdemeanor violations of the CFAA in 2008. But a judge later overturned the jury verdict against Drew and acquitted her. Perhaps the most famous CFAA case is that of Aaron Swartz. Swartz was a computer programmer and internet activist. In 2011, he was arrested after downloading millions of articles from the academic journal database JSTOR on MIT's computer network. He was eventually charged with two counts of wire fraud and 11 violations of the CFAA. The charges carried a possible penalty of a million dollars and 35 years in prison. Facing a trial and lengthy imprisonment, Swartz hanged himself. I think that that headline sort of immediately, especially following his death around, you know, this was somebody looking at more than three decades in prison potentially, really startled a lot of people in the same way that some of the sentences like the 46 months in prison for Correa startled people. There were proposals following his death in Congress. There's one called Aaron's Law to amend the CFAA, um, change some of the sentencing, things like that. They they didn't make a lot of progress. But I, I do think that it sort of got some conversation going around this topic. I'm not sure I think it changed the ways that prosecutors were were thinking about and using the law, that's a very hard thing to assess. Hmm. I will say we didn't, you know, see a case exactly like Aaron's, um, but very few cases are exactly like his, right? It was was such a unique situation, somebody who was downloading millions of academic articles that we wouldn't expect necessarily to, to have other examples in that regard. And I do think that there's been a little bit of a tendency over the past few years, maybe in part because of his case, to try to focus CFAA charges on clearer wins for the government and trying to focus them on sort of people who have done something more clearly egregious or in violation of the law. Um, But I, I wouldn't say that there's been any kind of very concrete change other than this ruling out of the Supreme Court which didn't didn't speak exactly to Aaron's case and sort of how how that precedent might have changed it, but did start to narrow down a little bit the way in which this law has been applied, did send at least a signal of we don't think that 
the broadest possible interpretation of accessing a computer without authorization should be used. But lately, the government has started to rethink the broad application of the law. The Justice Department recently released new guidelines for prosecutors about how to pursue CFAA cases. Let's talk a little bit about these new Justice Department guidelines. They seem to fall into two categories. I wonder if you could lay them out for me. I think the first thing that's really important, especially for people like me who do research, um, is there's an exemption carved out basically that says we don't want prosecutors to charge anybody doing good faith security research. So there's this concern if you're doing the kinds of research where you look at popular computer programs or websites or platforms and try to find security vulnerabilities, right? If you're looking at autonomous vehicles and saying, look, here's a bug, here's a bug, here's a way somebody could attack this, that the manufacturers of those devices could come after you and say, hey, you weren't allowed to access that, you didn't have authorization, or you're messing around with our copyrighted code or something like that. Um, and so, so one of the things that the new guidelines do, which I think is important, though I think there are still a lot of questions to be resolved here, is it says we don't want prosecutors to charge anybody who's doing that kind of security research in good faith. And I think the questions and the fights are going to come up around sort of, well, what makes security research good faith research? And the example that they give in the guidelines um, for what would not be good faith research is if you do research and then you try to extort the manufacturers and you say, you know, I'm going to publish this unless you give me a million dollars. I think there's going to be a lot of gray area between sort of, we did this research we reported it responsibly to the companies that had uh, an opportunity to fix it. We published it, you know, according to a reasonable timeline, all of that. And the researchers who are just like, oh, I found this thing and then I tried to extort somebody with it. Yeah, it seems from my very layman's understanding, like they're sort of trying to differentiate between good hacking and bad hacking. In fairness to the Justice Department, one of the reasons they're doing that is that when charges are brought under the CFAA, often one of the sort of lines that people use is like, oh, I was just doing security research, right? And so I think it's reasonable for the Justice Department to want to say, like, sometimes people are doing real good, beneficial security research, and sometimes they're just saying that. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, everybody. It's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. The other update to the guidelines is the DOJ essentially recognizing how we all use computers now. An understanding that what might technically be unauthorized computer use isn't exactly hacking. 
if we say, well, you know, let's say you use a work computer during the workday and you sign an acceptable use policy, as many of us do uh, when you start your job that says, I'll only use this work computer for work purposes and, and professional projects. And then you're, you know, sitting around answering your email and you think, huh, I'd really like to check the Celtics score today. I'd really like to buy a shirt, right? And you start doing that. And somebody says, well, hey, you were exceeding your authorization when you did that because you were only authorized to use your computer for work purposes. It would be a big stretch to call that kind of unauthorized use hacking. The lines around this stuff are a little blurry. Still, a recent Supreme Court case found that a police officer named Nathan Van Buren, who used his access to search digital license plate records in exchange for money, had not violated the CFAA. The case I was talking about that went to the Supreme Court, where you had a police officer using the license plate database for non-work reasons. Um, Certainly, I would say a a little bit more egregious than checking the baseball scores, but a similar thing in which you have a a computing resource that your employer has given you and you're using it for some non-work purposes. Um, And so I think the sentencing guidelines saying, look, if you violate some kind of a written policy, there are all of these written things that we kind of click through and don't read that say, here's how I'll use this computer or this website or whatever. And if you violate the terms in those, that's not a crime. Right. That's that's the sort of important development here. And it is important because it says we're we're not going to kind of leave it up to random companies to write criminal laws. Right. To say, like, here's some random agreement that we wrote down. And if you violate it, that could potentially be a, a crime. It's certainly progress to have the U.S. government saying, like, that's not something we're going to prosecute as a crime. We started this conversation talking about the the Cardinals Astros case. Um, Do you think that the Cardinals exec, Chris Correa, would he still be prosecuted in the same way now? He certainly could still be prosecuted under the CFAA, using somebody else's password without their permission to access their accounts is certainly and always has been a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, So yes, I think he would still be prosecuted. Would the sentence be exactly the same? That, That depends so much on the court and the circumstances. It's a little hard to know. But I think that sort of the specific terms of what he did would not in any way be altered by these new guidelines. I think one of the things that is so complicated when we are talking about either this piece of legislation or other really big ones, I'm thinking of a very important law that dictates a lot of our tech activity that was written in 1996, is that they were written in the 80s and the 90s. And so much of how we use technology has changed and changed so fast. What do you think is the right way to change or or codify these laws? Should it be through subsequent court decisions like the Supreme Court? Should it be legislative updates? You know, how how should we make laws reflect the the world in which they are applied. I think that you know if Congress had motivation to to change this law they could do that potentially faster certainly more comprehensively than we've seen it done by these kind of one-off court cases and in the Van Buren case last year was the first time this the Supreme Court had ruled on the computer fraud and abuse act so it took a very very long time for this controversy to kind of even make it to that level the reliance on courts to disagree at the lower levels and finally kind of work their way up to the Supreme Court and the circuit courts is is a very slow, very frustrating process. 
The things I would most like to see around the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and these are these are not new ideas. These are ideas people have been floating for many years now, are some revision of the ways in which charges are counted and sentences are applied. I do think that there's something really startling about how large the prison sentences potentially are. Like with Aaron Schwartz, it was sort of he, you know, was connecting to this JSTOR database multiple times. So there were multiple counts. And so you you racked up the prison years. The other thing that I think is, is really sort of weird about these sentencing guidelines is they often hinge on how much damage has been done. So for instance, if you look at the, the baseball case we were talking about, a part of that 46-month sentence is that the Astros come to court and they say something like, you know, we've lost millions of dollars. It's hard to know exactly what they mean by that. Um, but the same thing with Aaron Schwartz. You saw this case where you had an academic database that was like, this is hundreds of millions of dollars worth of academic articles that have been stolen, which is, uh, and I say this as somebody who writes academic articles, a crazy way of thinking about the value of downloaded academic articles. Um, and, and so I think the sentencing really needs to be reconsidered and we need more reasonable, more proportional ways of thinking about how that should work. And the other piece of this um, is that I think there really needs to be a much more across the board revision of how we define accessing computers without authorization or an excessive authorization to say that that only applies to what we might call circumvention of code-based restrictions. What does that mean in plain English? It means you have to do something technical. It Mm. means you don't just violate the terms of service. Right. You don't just say, you know, oh, I was supposed to put my real name on my Facebook profile, but I thought it would be funny to put Father Christmas or whatever. Um, And and it would also mean that, like, if Facebook sends you a cease and desist letter saying stop scraping data off of our site and you continue to do that, then they cannot say that was an act of illegal hacking. That was not a violation of a code based restriction. That was a violation of a cease and desist letter. Um, And so it'd be an attempt to say sort of you have to actually be doing something with the computer that you weren't supposed to be able to do, that the computer itself had some code or some technical control that was meant to stop you from doing it. It certainly wouldn't resolve every question around what's illegal hacking, but it would narrow a fair bit kind of the range of hacking activities to something that I at least think would, would more closely resemble the kinds of behavior that we want to be trying to find legal restrictions for. And it sounds like the kind of thing that most people would actually say, oh, yeah, that sounds like hacking. Yeah, something where where you would say, you know, not just this is such a broad law that we can bring it against anybody we, we're, we're mad at, um, which I think is kind of what happens in that Laurie Drew MySpace case where you've got somebody where there's a lot of public outrage and prosecutors are kind of looking around trying to figure out what can we do here. But something that's that's actually a little bit tailored to understanding what computers are and what it means to hack into them, to use them in a way that they're not supposed to be used. Josephine Wolf, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Josephine Wolf is an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. All right, that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next? Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. We'll be back next week with more episodes.
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 